So this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 10. We look to Romans chapter 10, and we will specifically concentrate our time on the first five verses. We'll make mention of verse number six, but we'll be looking at Romans chapter 10, uh, verses one to five. And what we'll concern ourselves with this morning is the true word of faith, the true word of faith, uh, because that is what this particular chapter in Romans is referring to. It's referring to the true word of faith. It is the word of faith that leads to salvation in Christ Jesus. Uh, the next time we're together, it will show up uh, more specifically as Paul begins to argue what that is in the verses that follow, uh, specifically verses 8 and beyond. But uh, this morning, I did want to introduce the chapter itself to you. And what Paul is concerned with is Paul wants salvation of uh, the Jews. He wants their salvation. He wants Israel to be saved. He wants them to be right with God. He wants them to be reconciled. He wants them to come to the knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants the open confession uh, from their mouths to be that Jesus the Christ is Lord. So that's what he wants for them. And in all that Paul has said to this point, he desires ultimately what God wants for Israel. It's not just what he wants, but he's been explaining in the last chapter, uh, Romans chapter 9 leading into this chapter and all the way through chapter 11, he has been explaining that he ultimately wants what God wants. And what God wants is Israel's salvation. God wants the Jews to be saved. He does not desire his own carefully crafted theological plan. So Paul's not coming up with his own plan and how God ought to or should deal with Israel. What God wants is what the prophets proclaim for Israel, and also more specifically, Israel's salvation and the future hope among the remnant Israel. So that's what he wants. He does not desire what would best draw a crowd in the future from his vantage point for some conference circuit as they talk about Israel. That's not what Paul wants. What Paul wants is actually very simple. He wants Israel to repent of their sins on a national scale and on an individual scale. And he wants them to turn to Yahweh and live. He does not desire what would make in the most what would rake in the most profits from book sales speculating about the plight of Israel, because there are so many who are doing that today. They are writing about the various ways that they think God has either failed or man has failed about Israel, and somehow they're positing all these views and putting them forward, and it's just speculation. All of it is speculation. But when you see what Paul writes concerning Israel, he's also not desirous for a debate about Israel. He's not trying to debate about what possibly, potentially, should or shouldn't happen with Israel. Instead, his thoughts are quite simple, and his words are quite simple, and we will begin with where they are. In fact, in verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So I would say when we begin to discuss what God has for Israel, we have to approach it the same way that Paul approached it. Because Paul wanted their salvation. Paul wanted for Israel to be saved. And not only did he want it, he prayed to God 
that it would happen for them. That's what he wanted. He didn't say, you know what, the church now is in the scope and realm of God's plan, and therefore we don't have to think about Israel, or you know what, let's think about a nation that exists without their Messiah and just call them Christians. No, what Paul said is these are very real people who don't have the Messiah, and because they don't have the Messiah, we have to pray for their salvation, and our hearts should long that God would act on their behalf. Now, he has already explained and will explain further that not all Israel is Israel. So even though we do pray for all of Israel, we know that God will deal with his remnant. The reason we're praying for all is not potentiality. It's not hypotheticals. We're praying for all because you and I don't know who the remnant is. And we don't know each individual person that would be categorized as the remnant. We do know that there is a number attached to them. And we have talked about it before. As we considered Revelation, as it ties to uh, these things, especially when we talked about the Jerusalem Council and Acts, uh, God will deal with 12,000 uh, from each tribe, from each of the 12 tribes during the tribulation age, which comprises of 144,000 individuals, 144,000 souls that he will intentionally among the tribes of Israel deal with. We need to be praying that God will deal with his remnant because we know he will and we need to long for their salvation. We need to long for that day where God will specifically deal with them because that's what Paul wanted. He desires from his heart and prays to God for this something, this salvation. And simply put, he wants their salvation. He wants them to be saved. He desires that the true light of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ would truly shine upon them, their hearts and save them. So he wants Israel to be saved. And in fact, what Paul says here as we launch into Romans chapter 10, he repeats what he has already said elsewhere in Romans chapter 9. Because there he deals with his heart for the Jews and the desire for them to be saved. And I want us to look there very closely at Romans chapter 9, verse 1, where he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Well, who is that? He says it in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Jesus coming from among them and also Jesus being the God man who can save them. Who is over all God bless forevermore. Amen. And so he begins to launch into that. And I would say that. The thesis, the argument that Paul is trying to make all the way throughout specifically this section of Romans, which we understand is Romans chapter nine verses uh, all the way to Romans chapter 11. The thesis is in verse six, but it is not, though, the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So Paul sets out to prove 
that God's word has not failed in regard to saving those whom God has chosen, but he also wants to provide a distinction between who is the true national Israel and who are the true divine Israel. So he wants to distinguish that there is a true nation, but that true nation does not mean that everyone in that nation is a part of God's divine plan to save them. And so he, he, begins to, he begins to repeat those same thoughts in Romans chapter 10. He deals with his own heart for the Jews. He deals with the desire for them to be saved. But he's also humbled in the face of judgment. He's humbled in the face of judgment uh, toward those who live according to their own standard of self-righteousness. And this section is largely about Israel's failure to have faith in God because of their own self-righteousness. I'm going to put it very simply. They thought with the standard they created that they were okay. They thought that they would meet with eternal glory in God because of their standard. And that standard was a standard of self-righteousness. But Paul, in the face of that, he's humble because he knows how deceptive that is. He knows that that is something that condemns and damns a person. It doesn't bring a person to eternal fellowship. And he knows that Israel, on a large scale, is deceived. He knows that they are deceived about their position before God, just as they always have been if they have not confessed their sins before him. But I'll tell you, he's not only concerned with their condition, he will indeed, as we work our way through this text, he will indeed lay out the only remedy for their condition. He's going to talk very plainly about how will Israel become the true Israel from above. How will they be saved? And he'll also deal with who among them will be saved. But I'll tell you. Because this certainly applies to the world in which we live today, especially the religious world in which we live today. It is a serious issue when men forfeit the righteousness of God and set out with great with great zeal in their own righteousness to pursue that false righteousness. I'm going to say that again. It is a serious issue when men forfeit the righteousness of God and set out with great zeal for their own righteousness. To pursue that righteousness. I would say that that is by far the most dangerous condition that man could find himself in. That he pursues with great zeal his own righteousness or form of righteousness that he thinks he has when he doesn't have any that could reconcile him to God in and of himself. So here Paul doesn't settle. He doesn't make concessions for Israel. He doesn't say, well, Israel's trying their best. He's saying Israel missed the mark. It is not enough for Paul that they have zeal in a form of godliness. That's not enough for Paul. It's not enough for God that these people have zeal in a form of godliness. Look at verse two. For I testify about them. This is a testimony, the same solemn divine testimony he gives about his heart for Israel his conscience bearing witness about them in Romans 9. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not in accordance with knowledge. They have a zeal for God, 
but it's not in accordance with knowledge. It's not enough for Paul that they have this zeal. And it's not enough for Paul that they have some knowledge because Paul talks about some of the knowledge they have. But that knowledge is misapplied because their zeal is staked on the claim of self-righteousness. So they are zealous for their own glory. They are zealous for themselves. It is not enough for Paul that they have the appearance of righteousness. We live in a fake it till you make it evangelical climate. That's not enough for Paul. And I would say that that evangelical climate is built upon the school of the Pharisees. Because you have people who have an appearance of righteousness. They have an appearance of righteousness. And to them, that's enough. But Paul is saying that's not enough. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. So you need to be hidden in Christ. Because all you really have is his righteousness. That's all you have. I don't have a righteousness of my own. All I have is the righteousness of Christ. That is credited to my account. When you have what Paul is saying, this perfect storm of self-righteousness, do you know what then happens to people as they begin to assess things? They begin to judge outwardly. And they become unskilled, incompetent in judging inwardly for themselves and for others. So you can paint a very good picture that looks like righteousness. But when you get down to it, there is no righteousness to be found because that is only self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is enough to condemn a person to hell. It is not enough to lead them to heaven. And I would say that is largely where we find ourselves as we look at this passage. So this passage is certainly timeless. Even though it's historical context, we will spend a lot of time dealing with uh, it, it's dealing with Israel, but also as we move to Romans 11, Paul is very much concerned with how might then the Gentiles consider themselves in light of what happened to the Jews, just like he does in Romans 1. For Paul, it was that he wanted their salvation on God's terms and God's alone. We've talked about that a lot in Romans, that even as we begin to launch in Romans and we introduced it, uh, one of the statements I made was all of this is God. This book is about God. It's about what God does, what God wants to do in his timing, what God will accomplish in his timing and the glory and honor and praise to his name for it. Also in judgment as well as in mercy. The book is very much about God. It's not about obscure theological phrases to puff one's mind up. It's not about that. It's about what God has accomplished. And the theology can be explained based on understanding what God is setting out to accomplish in very plain terms. That is what this book is truly about. I believe that Romans itself, especially these few chapters that we're in, need to be rescued from the academy. They need to be rescued from the academy that seeks to obscure Romans in general. But Romans is not a book about Reformation. It's a book about reconciliation. It's a book about reconciliation. And so when we look at it, that's what is happening in Romans. But verse one, I say that because in verse one, 
Paul is praying for people's salvation. He's praying for people's salvation. He longs for their salvation. And in doing so, he's speaking and writing directly to them. He's not only praying for their salvation, but he's addressing where they have failed. And he's praying for those areas where God might save them and rescue them from their sinful failure. He is direct. But in verse 2, as we move through the passage, he identifies why they do not possess salvation. He identifies why they do not possess salvation, specifically in verse uh, verses 2 and 3. And I would say like a physician, a careful diagnosis is necessary before rushing toward a remedy. A careful diagnosis is necessary before rushing toward a remedy. Everyone is in a rush. Everyone is in a rush, even at times in coming to Scripture or not coming to Scripture, to either offer a diagnosis or to pretend that the diagnosis is the remedy. But you don't rush, especially with these divine things concerning the salvation of people. You must offer, as Paul does, a careful diagnosis of their situation before God. Who are they before God? Let's examine them. Let's look at them. Let's see where they are not only sick, but where they are dead. And then let's offer them the remedy for their condition. And Paul is clear as to what Israel's condition is. He's clear as to what it is. And when he does so... He's not merely giving an opinion. He's giving testimony before the high court of heaven, before Christians of all ages, before the very uh, God of the Bible himself. In the Holy Spirit, by Christ, agreeing with the testimony of Christ, agreeing with the prophets who spoke of and longed for the coming of Messiah. He's giving testimony about Israel. In your mind, you can picture a courtroom and he is Approaching the stand, he is sitting down and he is about to give sworn divine testimony about Israel. And he's been doing so all the way throughout this point. But he's giving testimony about them. And what is the bar of justice to which Paul is appealing? He is appealing to the bar of God's perfect righteousness. So when he's sitting there or standing there or writing there or testifying, He is saying before God's perfect righteousness, here is my testimony that I'm giving. And I would say that what you and I can learn from that is as we diagnose and discern the times and the world around us, our standard is still God's perfect righteousness. When we begin to speak of what plagues, what ails, and as we then offer a remedy, a solution, our standard, our appeal is not the spirit of the age. It's not ministerial experience. What our appeal is, our appeal is God's perfect righteousness. This is what God wants. This is who God is. And this is where it is written. Because that's where Paul goes. You'll see that Paul begins to bring in, as he already has, the prophets. Paul doesn't say, well, Israel's doing okay. I mean, you know, they're trying their best. The Lord knows. The Lord knows their hearts. No, what Paul is saying is the prophets testified, testified very plainly about your hearts, testified very plainly about your spiritual condition. 
and you did not listen. And I'm going to give you example after example why that's the case and how you arrived there. But I'm also going to give you an example of how you can be rescued from that. So he is standing before God's perfect righteousness and divine justice. And he's bearing witness from God himself. So he's speaking on behalf of God as an apostle of Jesus Christ as to where Israel stands before God. So my point is, men who assault or take these things out of order, they are attacking God himself. They are attacking the nature of God's salvation plan. They are trying to obscure it. They are trying to make it a matter of no importance at all. They are trying to merchandise it. But you have to understand that this is divine testimony. You do not mess with divine testimony. The record is sealed because it's sealed in scripture. This is legal testimony before the heavenly courts and the divine judge. And that testimony has been accepted. But this testimony is also among men. He's testifying before God, through God, in God, about Israel, before men and before God. Paul is not obscuring or hiding details about Israel's spiritual deadness and apostasy before God. He's not doing that. He's not hiding who they are, what they've done, and what will be the end if they do not repent. In fact, Paul is as open in declaring Israel's condition as Israel has openly rebelled against God in harlotry. He's as open about his testimony concerning their condition, as open as Israel has been about their rebellion. Now let's pause here. That's a very important point. Because you have a religious climate where people are very open about displaying self-righteousness. They're very open about being pragmatic, doing whatever works, because they seem to think that dressing it up in a suit and tie means it's faithful. But I'll tell you, as open and publicly as people challenge God is as open and public as our testimony should be concerning their condition. Why? Not because we enjoy that, but because you have to offer a diagnosis as well as one who offers a remedy. You have to give a remedy. And this is the pattern that we'll also see as uh, or that we have seen with respect to Romans chapter one. Paul doesn't try to redefine, psychologize, hide what's happening among the Gentiles, use friendlier terms. He says this is what is befallen the Gentiles throughout the course of the fall, human history, leading from that point and up to the point that he writes. And it will get completely worse. And then he begins to talk about, oh, Jews, you think that this is uh, a situation where their standard of unrighteousness is since you have surpassed that you're free. No. I'm going to deal with you in Romans 2. And then he begins to deal with a remedy, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. And he speaks of not being ashamed of the gospel. The gospel indicts, but it also saves. He's not ashamed of either feature of it. And I'll tell you that the one thing that Paul recognizes in himself, because he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, that he stood most condemned among them all. And so he's not ashamed to diagnose where he once stood. 
because he has been rescued from it. Now he knows that God can rescue men from the same thing he was rescued from. A zealous murderer, a zealous capturer, a terrorist among Christians Saul of Tarsus was. And yet he knows that his self-righteousness condemned him. And that Christ coming to him had saved him. And so he's not ashamed to speak in very plain terms about that because he's not ashamed of the gospel that saved him. Nor is he ashamed of the Christ who is the power of God unto salvation and the open display of the gospel. But verse three, what has Israel done? What have they done? What have they done for Paul to, in a sense, begin to speak about their condition? Verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. But we have something there for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Well, what have they done? Well, first, I'll tell you what they did in this way. First, they had a zeal for God. They had a zeal for God. And for some, societally, that's enough. I'm a spiritual person. I have a zeal for God. That's enough. And I say that because many make a zeal for God a good thing, even if it's misplaced. Again, they say, I'm a spiritual person. I have a zeal. I have a, I have a love for God. I want to make God's name known. And then you have the modern evangelical who is not doctrinally sound and says, I want to make the name of God known. I have a zeal for God. But then you have some who make zeal a negative thing. So you have some who make it a positive thing and make the knowledge that's supposed to be attached to it a negative thing. But then you have some who make zeal overall a negative thing, even if it is proper zeal. Why? Because they want men to only be zealous for them. So they make zeal for God a negative thing. You need to calm down. You'll grow. You'll evolve. This is your cage stage. All the phrases that men try to use to stamp out true doctrinal zeal and a true love for God, the God who saved you. Because they want men to be zealous for them. They want men to be zealous for them. Look at it this way. I mean, I, I you know, I'm not going to sign homework from the pulpit, but look at it this way. Watch how men write. Watch what men say. Watch how people respond to them and watch how little Christ's name is used and how everyone gets excited about mentioning some other person's name. So watch how these people interact with each other and watch how you don't have to jump in the fray. Just watch how infrequently they mention Christ and watch how excited they get about the zeal for each other's names. The zeal for some event that took place. And you'll see very little mention of the word Jesus Christ at all. You will see nothing that says Jesus the Christ. But they'll tell you, I'm doing this because I'm zealous for the glory of God. But that is not what's happening. Remember, diagnosis leads to remedy. We can't be shy about the diagnosis because then we can't offer a remedy. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. They make it a negative thing because they want people to be zealous for them. They don't want people to be zealous about the doctrine 
or the true teachings of Christ. They want men to be zealous for them, for their glory. But Paul allows no such separation between the two, not for Israel and not for us. Listen, if you look at the passage, if you look at verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness, meaning they're supposed to know it and seeking to establish their own. They're not supposed to do that. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Let me flip that in the positive. Had they known about God's righteousness, had they sought to establish his righteousness, had they subjected himself to the righteousness of God, where it is revealed, where it is proclaimed, where it's written, then guess what? They would have had a proper zeal according to knowledge. They would have had a proper zeal according to knowledge. What Paul does in this context, he combines the necessity for zeal for God. So it is very necessary to be zealous for God. Very necessary. But it's also very necessary to be knowledgeable about what God has revealed in his word. So the two exist together as the means through which we walk in God's true righteousness. What I'm giving you is how to avoid the sinful errors that Israel has made. For Paul writes elsewhere that we have to learn from their example of disobedience and failure and sin. So you must have a zeal for God and knowledge. You have to have both. And what what happens with that is not self-righteousness, but God's righteousness and the fruit of the spirit. It's now on display. That's what happens. So listen. Israel's problem was not a lack of zeal. That was not their problem. Israel's problem was not simply being filled with knowledge. So listen, Israel's problem was not a lack of zeal. And Israel's problem was not simply being filled with knowledge. Now that is a very important point because that point exists Where people want to dumb you down to make you think you don't need knowledge and you only need zeal. Or to make you think that you only need knowledge but you need to temper your zeal. Israel's problem and the religious leaders problem was not a lack of zeal because they had zeal. Paul says they had zeal. And and furthermore he raises the stakes. They had zeal for God. But. It was not it was it was not a, a, a proper zeal. Now, listen to this. Their problem, I say it this way, it was also not being filled with knowledge and lacking zeal. That was not Israel's problem. So many have made a caricature of the Pharisees, the religious leaders as being filled with knowledge and lacking zeal. So somehow you can be met with the teachings of Christ. You can understand theology. And, and in some way, that's a bad thing because you have the knowledge, you just don't have the zeal. But I'm here to tell you that if you have the knowledge, you will have the zeal. And if you are zealous for God's true righteousness, then you will have the knowledge. I'm, I'm appealing to the Beatitudes. I'm appealing to what God has said in Christ concerning 
the fact that you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. I'm speaking the language of the psalmist in Psalm 119, in that large catalog of divine testimony and scripture where he talks about wanting to be acquainted with and knowledgeable of God's righteousness. I'm talking about everywhere else where doctrine is very much clearly taught in the New Testament and in the Old. So it was not, their problem was not a lack of zeal or simply being filled with knowledge. It was also not being filled with knowledge and lacking zeal. You know what it was? Paul says they had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. That was their problem. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they had the zeal. But they didn't have the knowledge. It wasn't anything wrong with the knowledge. You want to know why? Because they didn't have the knowledge. So the knowledge wasn't a problem. They never had it. They had the zeal. And they had all the clues that should have led them to the knowledge. But instead they rejected the knowledge. And they raised up their own form of false knowledge. And they became zealous for that. So it was nothing wrong with the knowledge. It's not, hey, you know what? You should study scripture less. Let's just do a book study to kind of temper things. Make sure you're not learning too much. Let's make sure that we sing more in church so that you're not learning scripture a lot more. Let's just cut back on talking about scripture. Let's be very careful with these things, which is what people told me in my early walk with Christ. Let's be very careful with the knowledge part. Because it will stamp out your zeal. That's a lie. That's a lie from Satan. Because if you have the knowledge, you are then truly zealous. But guess what? The knowledge must be had with God's righteousness. You can't have the knowledge if you don't have God's righteousness. You can't have the proper zeal if you don't have God's righteousness. So everyone focuses on knowledge and zeal, but they don't focus on God's righteousness. Because if you have God's righteousness, you'll have both. And guess what? That is a great thing to have. It is a great thing to have knowledge and to have zeal. It is not a great thing to say, hey, the preacher really preached today. What did he preach? I don't know. Oh, church was great today. What was great about it? I don't know. We said Zeal without knowledge. But also you have people who are doing verbal gymnastics with these theological terms and they have what they think is knowledge. They don't have knowledge. They have something that puffs up their minds, themselves, their brand, and they have no no proper zeal. Guess why? Because they don't have righteousness. They have self-righteousness. Paul is combing through this with a fine tooth comb. He is creating a distinction that you and I must love and cling to because it's God's distinction. There was nothing wrong with the knowledge. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the knowledge. So you can't even say the knowledge was corrupted because they never had it. They were ignorant. They had the zeal. Everything was wrong with their zeal because everything was wrong with the form of righteousness with which they met God's decrees. That is self-righteousness. 
It wasn't wrong for them to have a zeal for God. That's not what Paul is saying. But it was a great sin to have a supposed zeal for God and so think that they were pursuing his righteousness when they were really pursuing their own. Remember what I said. God cares about motive. He cares about your motive. In their so-called zeal for God, Paul writes, they failed to pursue true righteousness. So they were saying and thinking and acting as though their zeal was toward God. But it is not okay to lie to yourself and think that that is happening when it's not. The word of God says, test yourself. To see if you're in the faith. That's not a challenge to make you think you're not if you are. It's a challenge to assure you that you are if you are. And to continually test that reality about yourself. But here's what they did wrong in their zeal. The knowledge didn't lead them there. Their self-righteousness led them here. In their zeal, they sought out to establish their own righteousness as they could not nor desired to, they could not nor desired to subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for that's what he says. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. I believe that this is both cause and effect, that they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God, and therefore you're looking at the effect. But the cause of why they did everything they did is equally so that they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You also see how distinct this is from the Gentiles who denied the righteousness of God. But it is only a distinction along one lines. The Gentiles don't hide their sins. Worldlings, pagans, they don't hide their sins. They're very open and flagrant about it. Self-righteous, religious people who are not saved who do not truly have the righteousness of God, they sin in the same way as the Gentiles. They actually give approval. That's what Paul says in Romans 2. They sin in the same ways, but what they do is they hide it under the bar of their own self-righteousness. They hide it. They lower the standard. The problem is not the knowledge. The problem is not the zeal. And the problem is not God's righteousness. The problem is self-righteousness, because that's where it leads. They had zeal without Christ and his cross. That's what they had. Zeal without, I believe that's what we're seeing today. These people can quote you footnotes and can't say anything about the glory of Christ. They can't talk about Christ. I'm not saying you don't read and you don't research and you don't look at things. But I'm watching a world before us where people can pronounce words that they can't spell. But when it's time to talk about scripture, they have no idea how any of it connects together. They can't talk to you about Christ. Christ is so far from their mouths. You see how little Christ is proclaimed among people who are claiming that he can be found among them. There is no Christ involved in it. They have become little Christ. But here you have the zeal without Christ and his cross. Listen, that is still apostate Israel's problem today. They have a zeal for God without Christ. Let's not make it as though they are arriving there 
In fact, they've gotten worse. But guess what? Same is true about the Gentiles. They've gotten worse. If they do not have the righteousness of Christ. They had no knowledge. They were pretending. It was a scam. It was a scheme. They were pretending to have knowledge. It was a it was it was really a religious Ponzi scheme that apostate Judaism was running. And listen to me, modern evangelicalism is just as guilty of the same. It is a religious Ponzi scheme if there is no righteousness of God involved in it. It will generate appearances, but it will not generate true salvation in the hearts of God people because God's not there. He's not with them if they have uh, if they do not have his righteousness. But there's this pretentiousness. They pretend to have knowledge. Israel was guilty of pretending to have knowledge. They had no knowledge. It's why Paul brings it up in the beginning of Romans nine. They had all these things, but they didn't know that those things were the means of God's righteousness and could save them as a people and a nation. Well, it wasn't something they failed to realize because it wasn't plainly seen and evident. They failed to realize it because they threw that off to pursue their own righteousness. They rebelled against it. So they had no knowledge, but you know what they did? They merely developed a canon of so-called knowledge. They developed a canon of so-called knowledge that fed their unrighteousness. And self-righteous zeal to pursue their own self-righteousness. So they had this zeal where they said, we're going to develop writings, books, ceremony to pursue our own righteousness. And we're going to tell people that that leads to the righteousness of God. This is why... You had the multitudes. If you look in Jesus's ministry, you had the multitudes. The Gospels mention that every the multitudes. Jesus is saying things that come from the very mouth of God because he is God, the son. Testifying on account of God, the father by the spirit. And you have people hearing what Christ has said and saying either we have never heard that before or we reject them at wholesale. It's amazing. But listen, as he goes further, he establishes the point. Look at verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you were pursuing the true Mosaic law, you would have met with its end and the end of yourself. And you would have met with Christ because Christ fulfills the Mosaic law. Christ fulfills the testimony of Moses. The testimony of Moses points to Christ. So if you were really pursuing that, you would have arrived there. Because that's where that leads. You would not have arrived at. uh, uh, You would not have arrived at captivity. The curses. Being expunged and expelled from your land. A system raised up that cooperates with the pagan Roman Empire To the point where you're responsible for crucifying your Messiah. You would not have arrived there had you been pursuing God's righteousness. Because God's righteousness arrives at Christ. Let me help you. 
It is the same today. It, nothing has changed. God's righteousness leads to Christ. We are in the new covenant. If we are talking about new covenant benefits, the church, salvation, how the church should function, what the testimony of the gospel is, what the emphasis of the believer should be in the world before them and how they should conduct themselves, what should be coming heavy out of people's mouths is Christ. Christ in his quoting scripture, talking about what the word of God says, not men. Now, here's what this man says. Here's what Rabbi so-and-so says. Here's what this guy says. Here's what this guy wants us to do. It should be Christ, 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 Christ coming from people's mouths because you are in that covenant. My point is, you don't arrive there if you're not pursuing the righteousness that leads there. You do arrive at proclaiming and glorying in sinful men. If you're pursuing the same self-righteousness they are. Because self-righteousness is all about glorying in yourselves and comparing yourselves. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. You can't arrive at righteousness by simply keeping the law in and of yourself because you can't keep the law in and of yourself. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. To everyone who believes. Not to everyone. Not potentially everyone. Not hypothetically everyone. But to everyone who believes. So if you truly believe, if you truly believed what the law's intention was and you were pursuing it by faith, you arrive at worshiping Christ. If in that time frame in the Old Testament, Christ is not yet crucified by the chronology, by the timeline, then by faith, you are practicing the law, confessing your sins where you don't, offering, uh, offering sacrifices where you fail. But you're trying to not only arrive at God's righteousness, you're trying in his power. And so you're longing and hopeful that he will send a Messiah that will eliminate the necessity to perform the stipulations in the Mosaic Covenant. You are living by faith that he will arrive in the way he will. In verse 5 he says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall what? Shall live by that righteousness. <coughs> And then he gives a distinction between that and the righteousness of faith. Paul brings in Moses, and we'll talk more about this next time. But he brings in what the prophet Moses has written first in summary. He summarizes in that verse. And then he's specifically going to show you how this testimony of Moses applies to the people. But Paul brings Moses forward because, listen to this, because the self-righteous leaders among the nation and the multitudes believed they were following Moses. They believed they were upholding what Moses wanted them to uphold as from God. They believed that they perfectly kept the Mosaic law. They believed that. You don't believe that? Well, when Jesus testifies about their condition, they want to kill him. Because they say, well, we're righteous. What do you mean we need someone to die for our sins? To offer us all these sacrifices we've been offering throughout the centuries. 
And Jesus tells them, you're murderers. You're murderers. You're wicked. You come from your father's saint. But they believed they perfectly kept the Mosaic law and that Moses would bear testimony that they were sons of the covenant and sons of God. That's what they believed, that Moses would acquit them. Going back to the divine courtroom, they believed that. They had hoped in Moses, they had hoped in Moses and staked their claim to righteousness before God on the false claim that they followed what Moses had commanded to the Israelites. There's a word that describes that condition, it's called deception. They believed, they were deceived, thinking that they had followed what Moses commanded to the Israelites and they had done it successfully. Do you remember John chapter 5? You may not just that mentioning the, the chapter, but I want to end there this morning. John chapter 5. And I want to look at just very briefly a point that I believe Paul is appealing to uh, by the cohesiveness of divine scripture. How scripture ties together. How scripture testifies about itself concerning scripture. But John chapter 5. And look at verse 39. He, this is Jesus' contention against the religious leaders. And verse 39 he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Motive matters. You're searching scripture, but you're self-righteous. So in searching the scripture, you're making merchandise of it. You're not following in it, and you're misrepresenting the God who testified. But look at this. It is these, it is the scripture that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Look at what he says in verse 41. This isn't just a sticking point with me. It's a sticking point with scripture. I do not receive glory from men. Look at where that's placed. It's right in the center of the con. I do not receive glory from men. Why would he say that? Well, because a feature of self-righteousness, a feature of wickedness is to receive glory from men. That's what self-righteousness looks like. A lot of people believe that self-righteousness looks like something else. But it actually looks like that. That's self-righteousness. I do not receive glory from men. But look at what he says. But I know you. I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Well, because when you receive glory from men, you're really devouring one another. You're really devouring one another. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name. If you really believe that you would stop glorying in one another, you would glory in me. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Scripture is timeless. It is timeless. People are so readily in this pharisaical, rabbinical climate. They're receiving one another. They're receiving testimony about one another. And they readily do so. When you mention Jesus, oh, wait a minute. When you start talking scripture, oh, no, no, no. Hey, what are the top 100 books you like to read? Oh, I like to read the Bible. Oh, that's a stupid answer. This is how people are approaching what they believe to be righteousness. I'm only giving you its application. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Well, because if you love God, you'd receive Christ. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
How can you believe? Listen to me. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? That's a mark of unbelief. Receiving glory from men, exchanging glory as a commodity amongst men, that's a mark of unbelief. It's a mark of self-righteousness and unrighteousness. None of us deserve a hero's welcome. Only Christ. Look at this. When you receive glory from one another, you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Now he gets to it. Now he gets to the point I wanted to make to you this morning, because I believe this is why Paul is saying what he's saying. Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. I don't have to accuse you. Look at this. Not only are they self-accused, but look at this. The one who accuses you is Moses. Moses is the one who accuses you. In whom you have set your hope. You have set your hope in Moses, and guess who's going to accuse you? Moses. Moses. You want to know why? Because you're not even glorying in the covenant given to Moses. You're glorying in one another. Do you think that doesn't happen in the new covenant era? That men are not doing this in the new covenant era? I'll tell you, it's at an all-time high. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. I don't like how you look. You don't have enough followers. Your church isn't big enough. So I can't listen to your testimony. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. This carpenter from Nazareth. You would believe me. Now, you and I know he's more than a carpenter. Prophet, priest, and king, the God man. But you would believe me. But from their vantage point, he's just a dusty carpenter from Nazareth. Why believe him? We believe Moses. Listen, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is not merely just a dusty carpenter from that. This is the God man, the great warrior, king of kings, Lord of lords, the Messiah himself saying, if you truly believe Moses, you would receive my words. You can't and you won't because you're busy glorying in one another. You are pursuing self-righteousness and exchanging Glory between one another as though that represents what God or Moses wanted. And I'll tell you, one mark of damning self-righteousness is when men begin to glory in one another. And this was the case in his time. They didn't believe Moses because Moses pointed to God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. They didn't believe Moses' testimony, so how could they believe what Jesus was saying? Moses worshiped God. Moses longed for the Messiah in whom Moses staked his hope. So Moses's hope was in the Messiah. They're saying their hope is in Moses, but they don't have a hope in the Messiah that's standing in front of them. Hiding in men 
Even hiding in righteous men leads to judgment. Hiding in men, hiding in righteous men leads to judgment. Their hope was in Moses. Was that good enough? No. Moses is a righteous man. But their hope is in Moses. So hopefully Moses will appeal to God on my behalf. And because I'm affiliated with Moses, I'll be deemed righteous. And he's saying, no, Moses is going to accuse you because Moses is actually righteous. So Moses will say, I don't know these people. God, this is not your remnant. In the case with the Pharisees, they saw Moses as the mediator between God and man. But listen, people could talk all day about Roman Catholicism. But this is happening in modern evangelicalism. Movements that will tell you there is no pope, there is no mediator between God and man except the God, man, Jesus Christ, and then set themselves up as mediators between God and man. They're telling you as they're acting as a mediator that there is no other mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. But what did I say? God cares about motive. But what you're seeing is God also cares about actions, cares about actions. There is only one mediator between God and man. There really is. Go to Christ. Go to his word. And so it was it was Moses who would accuse the nation of Israel and these leaders in their guilt before God for their pursuit of self-righteousness and the glory they boasted in while comparing themselves to one another and flattering one another in their glory. It leads to damnation. Moses's true testimony and his righteous accusation. Now we're talking about Moses because Paul brought him in. His true testimony and righteous accusation about the apostate nation and its apostate believers before God is sure. And it is based on the standard God has raised. Well, what is that standard? Righteousness in Jesus Christ alone as the only means to salvation and reconciliation to God. If I believe that, if I'm walking in that, I'm truly walking in God's righteousness. Here's the hope and encouragement to you. If you believe that and you are staking your life's claim upon that testimony, you are truly walking in God's righteousness. You really are. But before the requirement, and but, but, but more, more so of the requirement is perfection. Why? Because the law demands perfect obedience. The law demands perfect obedience. It's why thinking you're following the law as a means to righteousness is so condemning. Because it requires perfect obedience. It requires perfect righteousness and it requires sinlessness before God. But that's also why Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is because he accomplished that. Next time we'll look more to this verse and the following verses concerning the true word of faith. Let's pray.